Hey everyone, welcome to Unpack This. This is our first pop culture episode of season two. I am Constance Bailey, one of your co-hosts. And I'm Joshu, your other host. And so today we have two special guests, but before we get into our introductions of our guests, I do want to say that there are spoilers. So if you have not seen Amazon Prime's Master, then you should just stop now. There are lots of spoilers, but we were so excited to unpack this show that we had to have a couple of our other friends on. So um, before we get into the show, I'm going to introduce one of our guests. He is a good friend from graduate school. Dr. J.L. Adolph is an associate professor of English at Georgia State University Perimeter College. Adolph, a St. Louis native and University of Missouri Columbia alum, specializes in hip-hop fatherhood narratives and college-to-career strategies. He is a proud father of four badass kids. No, I'm just joking. They're 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 cool, <laughs> wonderful young people, and friend, and two of them are friends with my son, who is also a wonderful young person. Um, but anyway, and he uh, is lead blogger of the YouTube show Dad Cipher, a hip hop guide to fatherhood. And I'm going to introduce our other guest, Nikita Reed, who is the founder and executive director of Arkansas Soul Media and a teaching assistant professor at the University of Arkansas School of Journalism and Strategic Media. Her field of study is digital media in which she specializes in diversity in media and digital content strategy. She also owns and operates a small digital marketing boutique called Branded by Nikki, serving small businesses and nonprofits in the tri-state area. She is also one of the handful of people for which I deeply regret moving from Arkansas, but we are very, very happy to have you both on today. Yes, thank you so much for, for joining us and gracing us with your time. We did have a little bit of, like, how many academics does it take to figure out a podcast, right? That's, that's really, we had some issues, but per our outline, I am charged with giving a brief synopsis, and so one of the things I wanted to do just quickly is give the IMDB summary because I feel like it's very misleading and and quite insufficient. <laughs> but according to IMDB, it says three women strive to find their place at an elite Northeastern university when anonymous racist attacks target a black freshman who insists she is being haunted by ghosts. Each woman must determine where the real menace lies. And so, to me, the biggest thing about it's not even that that summary is misleading; it's just very ambiguous. And there are some really ambiguous points in the movie, don't get me wrong, but uh, there's a lot that's head on. It feels like very visceral, very real life. It makes me feel claustrophobic sometimes watching it. It's like, oh my God, this is my life. So um, to be clear, right, the character that Regina Hall plays, and Joe is going to break down the characters a little bit more, so I'm not going to go too much into that, but she is first, you know, quote unquote master, who's basically like a head of house for a like residential slash academic space. So like some universities have housing communities, essentially. And so this particular house is, has historically been very white. And one of the things that we learn in terms of her being sort of the first Black woman to become a master at this house is that in the process of thinking about the other diverse faculty who are getting tenured, we know that as a Black woman, she had to work twice as hard to get the, the recognition that she has gotten. Um, and I tell you this, I thought it was like, oh my gosh, we got to talk about this now. And that's how I felt like when we first watched it like two weeks ago, but having just left the faculty women of color conference, where 
I sat in a session called You Are Not the Maid, right? And there is a maid in this film, right? Uh, and it talked about Black women's invisible labor. Like, it feels even more timely today than it did, because um, I literally just got back from that conference last night. So anyway, a college freshman um, dies at the hands of, well, it's debatable, because we'll talk about that, right? And um, we don't know whether we should indict white racism, it's systemic. We don't know if it's specific. We don't know if it's all of those things. Um, it's a lot going on. I will say just in the way of summary, if you are a, like a horror movie, gore, bloody type of fan, you know, it's, it's not that right. It is more of a psychological thriller. If any of you've ever seen like when, uh, when a stranger calls from like the seventies, not the newer update, that's not that good, but the one from like the (laughs) 79, 80, um, it's more like that meets get out. So that is how I would describe it. So a lot of psychological terror, very little blood and guts so that's my very long brief summary (laughs) wait i need to clarify about that summary the summary begins three women as in the summary is race evasive despite that being the center of of the film okay just 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 being clear (laughs) i didn't want to i because i felt like our subsequent conversations would peel that back and illuminate that so i wasn't gonna say it because i figured in your character you might say it but other than me saying like she's the first black woman yeah but that summary yeah that's why i'm like this is a little bit yeah it's leaving a lot out (laughs) (laughs) yeah i it just it i didn't i had never read the summary and it just was the first glaring thing i'm supposed to introduce the characters I'll just introduce the main three whom the film revolves around. So there's Gail Bishop, who's played by Regina Hall, who's an associate professor, the first black master of Ancaster, which is our metaphorical equivalent to something Harvard, Yale, Amherst, that sort of general, small, very wealthy liberal arts school. We have Jasmine Moore, who's a new freshman, who's trying to navigate this predominantly white institution. I think the movie says she's one of eight Black students on campus or something like that, maybe in the college. And then there's Liv Beckman, who's an assistant professor who's preparing to come up for tenure. And her particular racial positioning and background, I guess, is something that we'll talk about uh, within this conversation. Hmm. Yeah, boy, will we. Yeah, I mean, there are some other characters, but yeah, I think those are, yeah, though everyone else is kind of ancillary. Those are the the big folks. Jesse, we'll start with you because I I feel like you had not just that you had lots to say because all of my friends had lots to say, but there was a little bit of point, not a point of contention, but there was an ambiguous spot that I thought we sort of read differently. And so I'm really curious maybe to start with you, if you could give some of your big takeaways, favorite scenes or why you enjoyed the because I will say like the ratings are really strange to me because on Amazon of 10 when I looked at it it was like a 4.9 but you know for people of color in the academy you know I I loved it most of my friends were like oh my gosh this is so close to home some of the Mm -hmm. reviews seemed a little garbage to me but um yeah what were what is your reaction and then we'll kind of respond well you know I have like um four uh, takes that I want to put on there. The first, uh, just begin with the wording, sleepwalking, changing same, horror, and intertextuality. So the, uh, first, te- uh, the first part, sleepwalking, um, when we talk about the major characters in here, sleepwalking becomes a major theme with, um, what was her name, Jasmine, correct? Like, um, yeah, Jasmine. Yeah, Jasmine. And when we talk about sleepwalking, I, I believe it kind of 
captures all three of the characters because of their status as uh, women of color who have made it into the quote-unquote Ivy League. It's, uh, it's a sort of being um, sleepwalking through this entire process. And so it's in a sense of uh, how does one that's successful, Black, and educated function in these spaces where one still feels like they're a part of the sunken place. So you have that element of sleepwalking in there. Uh, changing same, um, which changing same, a term that I love from Amiri Baraka that talks about that basically when we look at African-American music or African folklore in this particular case, where it may change in form, is still addressing the same issues that take place with race. And so so what we have in the film is this sort of uh sort of gothic folklore that begins like kind of Salem witch trials, so to speak, and is uh like telling the story of this uh black woman who was obviously maybe from the fifties to sixties in Ancaster and she uh basically kills herself at three thirty three. And, you know, which is, I love the fact that they use the numbers, which is supposed to be transformation. College, the number three represents transformation, which is supposed to be that for these people. But yet, it, there is no transformation. It's just death. So you have the change in same. Then I want to, uh, now, uh, horror. When we talk about horror, in a sense, um, this is the big criticism for the film because uh, critics were saying, it's basically diluted. It's not horror in there. However, I believe that it was done intentionally because the horrors that people of color experience in the real world, for the most part, if you're outside of that culture, you tend not to see this as horrific. However, if you uh, look at each person like Gail and you look at Jasmine, these, uh, these horrors are real and it's devastating. And it's traumatizing. But yet to the real world, ah, it just seems like, get over it. You should have made it. You know, again, it's enforcing the sleepwalking. Last but not least is that whole te uh, theme of intertextuality. Whereas you have that Salem witch trials, which has those elements of uh, sexism, but yet it's tied in to race as well. So it's, um, so you see, like Liz and uh, who we don't know yet if she is black or not, that remains a mystery. But if she is, uh, <laughs> if she if she is not a black woman, then we could kind of look at then her character is meant to really show that even in the space of intertextual textuality, where we look at sexism and racism, sometimes or allyship, or allyship is blind to, or purposely blind to, um, the traumatic effect, uh, effects of race. So those wow. are my four big takes. Wow, that's deep. Okay, so let's do kind of like a round robin style real quick to respond to Jesse's hot takes. And because I got crazy kid drama in the background, I'm going to save my take for last. So I'm going to mute. I don't know if Nikita or Joe, if either of you want to hop in and respond to Jesse. 
Yeah. Well, J- <clears throat> my apologies, J.L. Adolf. <laughs> give him my, my government name. <laughs> I'm trying to hide from the feds. I, 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 I'm sorry, Dr. J.L. Adolf. I think um, those were some profile points, and you hit on a lot of the things that I was thinking about, in particular this thought that you could just get over it, right? Like this, this is what you asked for. You made it. So just get over it, suck it up. And even some level of people not believing you, right? So we got this ghost story, but it kind of mirrors real life where it's just like you tell folks what's going on and then they brush it off. Like, oh, it's probably just this or that, you know, that's what I took from it as well. It's just like, who's going to believe you? And who can help you in this situation <laughs> if, they, mm-hmm. if, if they don't even believe that it's happening or they want to just brush it off as you're imagining things, you know? Mm-hmm. So very, very, very deep points there. I probably won't have anything half as the... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize we were doing conference presentations. I did not bring notes or slideshows. <laughs> yeah, but no, you're, you're on point. You know, but that was one of the things that I picked up on was the sleepwalking. And then, yeah, just this whole idea that, you know, fuck it up. You know, you're there for a reason. And a lot of times you got to make it. But a lot of times, mm-hmm. a lot of us, we're the first ones, you know, or right. it's not just you representing. You represent all of us. So you got to right. make it. You know, ain't no, you know, being weak and, you know, fragile is for white folks, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to be strong. We got to make it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The The point about sleepwalking was really astute to me, um, particularly thinking through how watching Gail is particularly difficult, right? Because you understand that in her position, she is bound and restricted in ways that are super frustrating. Uh, but also, it looks like complicity, especially to someone like Jasmine, right, who's looking to her as somebody who might be able to protect her. The, the other thing that struck me, I just, I need to ask to clarify, there were people who responded to this with criticism that it wasn't horror? Correct. Yeah. See, that is, that's like life imitating art, I guess, right? Where you've created the film to highlight exactly how horrific this is, and people can see that and still <laughs> view it as, what, what are you complaining about? I, like, I don't even know what to do at that point, right? Mm-hmm. For me, what's so brilliant about these recent uses of horror is that we're using this genre to illuminate exactly how terrifying a lot of these circumstances are that we have to live through every day. Mm-hmm. And for so for me, and I'm sure for, for lots of other folks uh, who might identify even closer with what's happening in the film, it was hard to watch sometimes, you know? Um, and I said this when we talked about the chair, even. It just, it reiterated parts of academic life like, it was just so uncomfortable. Like, I've been in this room. I've been in this situation. I don't need to watch it on my time off. Um, and for people to respond to the cinematic version, the dramatized version of this, and still not be able to see it, that's my worry, I guess, with genres like mm-hmm. this, right? Like, that you can dramatize it, and then it somehow becomes even more normalized, right? It becomes, I don't know. Um so, so it was a brilliant take, but also gives me less hope about the future. So, so I, so this is not maybe 
this I don't think is a direct response to what you said, but maybe I'll go ahead and, and give my favorite scenes. This is something we said in a conversation, and I don't know that you said it just now, but it's also kind of one of my favorite scenes. So one of the great places of ambiguity in the film has to do with what kills Jasmine. And one of our conversations about the film, JL, you talked about um, self-harm and her inflicting pain on herself. So there are these great moments where we see her interacting with her. um, You know, we see a lot of microaggressions, which are just pervasive throughout the film. She's interacting with her roommate. So we know there's a little bit of tension there of some guy who's, you know, like all guys in college, an asshole, not worth it, but whatever. When we see her wake up, so this sleepwalking that you talk about, but when we see her, her awake from nightmares, she has scratches on her. She feels that something is following her. She is convinced of that. And towards the end, right, this is the thing that I think is so great. Like where you talk about self-harm, I'm like, no, white racism is in the in the form of Liv or Liz, Liz Beckman. Because because when Liz puts the cloak on at the end, we are Liv, L-I-V, I think. L-I-V, okay, yeah. We should just go ahead and say this because we hadn't said it. She's kind of like a Rachel Dolezal-esque character, right? So she is performing <laughs> identity. We don't um, know. We don't, we don't know. know. <laughs> well, we don't know, but we're led to believe because her Mennonite mother says, like, this is my daughter. Why is she saying she's black? But at any rate, she gets tenure and her tenure case was very thin. She was not very productive. But because this black girl has died and she politicizes, like, you're worried about the wrong thing. Jasmine's death literally becomes the catalyst for her career advancement. So when the Mennonite mother says... To Regina King's character, Regina Hall. Why am I talking Regina King? Lord, I'm horrible with names. All right, Regina yeah, Hall's character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when she, yeah, when she says to Gail, she's evil or or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. That to me made it seem like at least in some type of horror movie implication, right? It is ambiguous, but that she is the person who is literally following Jasmine. We haven't said this yet, but she's inflicting psychological trauma on Jasmine. Because she gave her, she failed her on an essay that was arguably a shitty essay, probably was. But most of the essays in that class, we are led to believe like other people wrote them last minute and they pass. Other white students wrote their paper last minute. They weren't that great. They got a passing grade. But she failed, she fails Jasmine. So to some degree, it seems like Liv is allying herself with whiteness, even while she's proclaiming her blackness. And so I think the source of tension for me is like the the scene where Jasmine, after getting out of the hospital and almost dying, she's like, I know what I have to do. And then Liz is the last person that she's uh, lived. Why do I keep doing that? I'm transposing these letters. Anyway, but she's the last person she talks to before she goes into the dormitory. And then the next thing we know, she has supposedly hung herself, right? And she's committed suicide by hanging. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the strong implication is that um, Professor Beckman like killed this girl in order to get tenure. That's oh. what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so, we got the, so we had a side conversation, especially about the side horn and that sort of thing. So I just want to uh, basically jump in, in the pin my position here. First and foremost, I viewed uh, Jasmine and uh and gail as two sides of the coin so both of them are impacted and this is goes back to that changing same that i said with amiri baraka and uh both are dealing 
with white space and what does it mean to be black in this white space? I think for Regina Hall, I mean, for Gail, now you got me doing, <laughs> with Gail, I think she is kind of from generation um, X and we've uh, kind of been taught to externalize racism. This is something that we just have to keep proving and keep overcoming. And uh, that's how we approach it. But then I think it's a generational warfare in the sense of Regina King was just like, no matter what, just keep fighting, keep going on. There's people who died to be in your position. However, Jasmine is more of Generation Z, where it's more of, you know, um, it's, the racism isn't as external as it may have been in Gail's time, but it's more invisible. So she's like, because you can tell it in Jasmine language when she says, like, I'm not like all of those other black kids. I don't come, I'm from the suburb. I, and so racism for her was more internalized because so, she's the only one that really have the horror elements of the preacher reaching or the ghost reaching from under her bed to grab her arm. And all of this are in the form of cuts. I'm uh, what I'm thinking is the film is saying for Generation Z, they are internalizing it and inflicting it on themselves more of a self harm. Like, why am I not deemed worthy enough to do this? And then you have the pressure from Gail. And to be honest, will you name Liv as the the person who led Jasmine to her death? I believe it's Gail by putting the additional pressure of you're not measuring up to the uh, people who came before you. Kind of like the hip hop generation was haunted by the civil rights generation of not doing enough for the cause, but not taking into account that we're experiencing race in a different way. Forms of change is still racism, though. Listen, man, let me tell you something. <laughs> we, we about to go. And actually, let me let me stop. Let me not be funny. Those are excellent analytical points. I'm not going to, you know, it's, it's like a, we can agree to disagree. And I for sure think that a lot of what you're saying is true. But I also think some of these things aren't mutually exclusive. And we know, like, Gail walks away at the end, right? Because she realizes, like, you know, if, when you're confronted with white racism and the reality that you are the maid, right? That you are there for optics and to clean up their shit. What do you do? Like this whole time she's been, to your point, has been operating under the assumption that we can make this a better place and a more equitable place. And she realizes that that's like, that's bullshit, that there's no way. But but in terms of kind of literally like the culpability in one, I'm going to lay that all on Liv because she was doing the whole white girl shuffle, whatever she's got going on there. But also because when Jasmine goes to talk to Gail specifically about the essay, so two things. Gail brings up the fact that there is a student who has a credible dispute when um, Liv's tenure case is being reviewed. She's like, well, there is a great dispute. Now, let's just put it out there for everybody in the R1. They don't care about your teaching. <laughs> if you don't publish the book, they don't care about no student dispute. If you have published a, a well-recognized and popular book, in right. the but, but if you are, say, a woman of color going through to tenure and your case is about to pass, they might care about your student dispute. Right. Well, that's okay. That's a great point. Joe makes an excellent point. So for women of color, you there, there's a precarity that Liv, Jasmine, and Gail's 
you know, positionality speaks to. And we see that. So that for other academics in, re, in, in you know, a top tier or whatever this is supposed to be, right, ANCAS is supposed to be in these elite institutions, they're primarily concerned about your research productivity or if you're in the sciences, your grant funding and your, the money. They seemingly are less concerned about students. But in this case, yes, a student complaint can be a stumbling block. But Gail does give a caveat because she feels a little uneasy. She had to work so hard for tenure. She wants to support Liv as her friend. And the reason I say she thinks it's maybe a credible complaint is because when she looks at Jasmine's essay, she says, well, the writing is good. Like she kind of, it seems like she thinks it's a weak argument too. But she doesn't, she doesn't say, yeah, you know, you got the grades you earned me. Sometimes I look at an essay and say, well, I understand why they gave you this grade. She doesn't say that. She just says, well, you know, your writing is good. So it seems like she's trying to temper Jasmine's complaint. She's trying to walk that middle ground that we all try to walk, where we're trying to met- metaphorically serve two masters. She's trying to not um, throw her friend under the bus and say she shouldn't have gave you this grade. But she's also not trying to cow the student you know, like pressure, like, oh, I should have had a better grade. You know, she's she's not trying to pull rank. So, I mean, she, she's in a really precarious position. But I do think you're right. She has some mm-hmm. culpability. I think she walks away because she knows she has some culpability. I'm sorry. I took other people's response. I'm going to mute myself now. <laughs> uh, I, I want to okay. hear Nikita's take. Yeah. Well... It's interesting that you say that there are two sides of the, what would you say? Two sides of the same coin. Uh, yeah, both sides of the same coin. Um, like, yeah. Well, I was triggered the entire movie because I saw myself in Jasmine and Gail. You know, Gail as being a, a black woman professor now at a predominantly white institution. But I was Jasmine in grad school where I went to the same institution, like, like Gail, right? And I, I felt those microaggressions and you... You feel the paranoia, and am I tripping? Wait a minute, was that a slight? I am outnumbered here. What do I do? You're trying to find uh, people who can relate to you, and you don't know as a young person that they're trying to walk that fine line, you know, and that they have to think about it as, like, I got to keep my job. I don't know how hard I can go. You're just seeing, like, they don't care. They don't hear me. Now I'm on the other side. And it's, it's hard. The whole thing was tricky. I'm like, oh, I feel Jasmine. Oh, I feel Gail. And this is a terrible movie. It's not a terrible movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I, I totally get that sentiment. Um, but I do get that she feels like Jasmine is going to haunt her. I've had instances where a student has walked away or they just dropped out. And you feel like it's your fault. And it's like, what more could I have done? Maybe I should have done this and that. And you think about it. It keeps you up at night because you were them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I really felt like Gail. And I understood being, you understand this, you, you walk in the tightrope, you know, and you don't want to mm-hmm. let her down. But you also got to keep your job and you got to line well with your colleagues, you know, and, you know, having Liz's back. What, what was her name? What was the lady's name? The, I think it's Liv. I think it's Liv. Liv. Why don't we call yeah. Liv? Laura, I don't... I'm going to put it in the chat. <laughs> you, know you know what? It could have been Liz, though. Now that no, I, think about, I put it in the chat so, name, we, can like quit, so we can quit changing it. Like, I think it's Elizabeth. But you know what? I just want to quickly jump in with that, that uh, my self-hatred thing with Jasmine. I think we can also look at the confrontation between Liv and Jasmine as a reflection of Jasmine's self-hatred as well. And here's Mm. why. Jasmine has suffered a lot of indignities and microaggressions 
from her white roommates and that sort of thing, and she does nothing. I mean, even when they put a noose on her doorknob, she says nothing. However, when she first uh, for a uh, first example of herself, uh, her sleepwalking is the fact that when she did not complete the assignment, the assignment was to look at race in the scarlet letter. She said she could not find race because she only defined it as black and white. First of all, that's an issue. So she did not complete the assignment. Second of all, the moment that she had some grade that she did not like, immediately I'm going to turn her in to the highest authorities because she's treating me like a black kid that did not come from the suburbs. I I graduated the top of my class. Wait, wait. I'm about to push back. I'm about to push back. I'm about you know to what? push she back. She said it. No, no, no. Here's why. Here's why. I'm just out of this. You make, you make some good points, but here's the thing. She didn't immediately. She went and met with that professor to try to better understand her, her thing. So it wasn't like immediately. But after she was turning it in, after she was uh, turning, she had the form in hand. Well, okay. But uh, hey, you got to stay ready in case you don't get but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing, right? It wasn't so much about, and I agree, absolutely. Like I said, that was probably a well-earned F. But other students who who had probably equally it's about equity right and and you're right about her her asserting her subvert like her i was top of the class yeah that that's for sure is spot on and that's why i say like a lot of your take on jasmine yes she she's been bombarded with microaggressions she has internalized self-hatred we see at the beginning she's rocking her you know almost natural and then she goes to the then her hair is pressed or straightened so um in many ways the physical change if we want to read hair and identity politics in that way, I personally think you can rock perm or pressed hair and straight hair and be down for the cause. What I'm not ascribing that to blackness, but I know people who can read it that way. So if we want to read it symbolically, that's there. So I think you're right about her trying to be like, hey, I'm a middle class kid from the burbs, blah, blah, blah. Don't try to treat me like other black kids. That's true. But it's also like, I know my rights because here's the thing that happens. I've told my son this, right? This is a little bit of a digression, but not for real. If you ever get stopped by a cop, something you did or didn't do, you need to say, hey, I need a lawyer. I say, you don't say anything. Like, you know your rights. So part of it is having the cultural capital to say, you're not going to be able to treat me the way that you're trying to treat. And so it is, to, to some degree, there's a little bit of her trying to distance herself from um, this inner city black identities. So trying to reject racial authenticity in that way, that's true. But I don't necessarily read it as I'm elite. I'm on some, I, I, I think that it's, again, this idea of tightrope and in between this and liminality, I think is really pervasive. And I think that's to um, Mariama Diallo's credit that we see like a lot of places where it can be either or because it's about this tension. I mean, I do agree, and I'm sorry. I'm on mute. I'm gonna stay on mute for real. No, you know what? So, I just I'm okay. gonna say this last thing, and then I'm out. <laughs> All that because I'm dominating. You say that. But, but but here's the thing. <laughs> Perhaps she should have been from the hood when it came to own uh to, for the pizza and that sort of thing. And here's why. I'm not going to let any folks get away with leaving me on the hook for pizza and I'm a broke college student? Are you serious? But right. she don't speak up for that. They, that costs her 20 ducats. 
You know how much twenty dollars is for a college student? It's a lot. It's a lot. But she has been cowed by white racism, right? You know. No, no, I'm getting my ends, yo. I don't care what it is. Now look, now look, here's the thing, though, Jesse. Now, this is where I'm gonna agree with you, right? If she had read Liz as being black, I don't think she would have dared contest that grade. So I do think that do you think that if she read not I I said that backwards, if she had read Liz as white, did I say black? If she had read Liv as if i had read if she had read live as white and and i don't know i could be wrong because there's there's gender we know that women are challenged we know that people of color we know that women of color are challenged more often about their authority in the classroom so it's possible but i think Mm -hmm. a white woman is going to get less pushback than a black woman so i think she's reading the racial performance that Liv is giving, you know, and, and we we can hash it out. She figured it out that Liv is white. No, not what you said. She was white. But no, <laughs> I don't. I don't think. I don't. I'm, a, I'm saying. I'm saying. If she, to your point though, she doesn't assert herself when she should. I'm saying she came at her because she thought she was a black woman. That's what I'm saying. Right. Like right, that she right. thought like, oh, I'm gonna get her to change this grade. I don't think she would have asserted herself against whiteness like that because she mm-hmm. went, she didn't get her money for her pizza. She should have well, got no, her money for that There's ambiguity there, though. I will argue because, and now I'm trapping back to like, trapping back to the real world. All of these cases of uh, racial theft, identity theft, whatever, it's been a student, right? Like, okay, we know Rachel, you know, it was the reporter. But think about these other cases that have been, like, outed. The students are like, something ain't right here. You know what I mean? So I don't know. That's how I took it. The students oftentimes, and they're the ones that see them every day in and out. They're picking up on things that just don't feel right or jive right. They're paying attention. And I've seen them picking up sooner. They might not have hit it on the nose. But that's what I gather from it. Like, I think Jasmine knew. She's just like, well, she's not all, like, what we call fully black. I don't know. That's how I took it. But, okay. All right. Hey, I'll bite. I mean, I think it's, I think we could read it either way. I'm, I'm cool. So can I throw a curveball real quick? Cause I want to get Joe's. Yeah, I know. I was about to say West Joe's take, but go ahead. Throw your curveball. <laughs> no, no. So, okay. This might be a sidebar, but it's kind of like in get out where the Asian character is kind of aligned to whiteness. Did you pick up on that? And do you think that there's probably actually some degree of invisibility? For Asian faculty and student, I know for the student parts, you know, or student, the student presence, I should say, in predominantly white settings, do you see it, I guess, meshing with reality in that? Because I don't know, I just feel like they always want to put them adjacent to white. What are your thoughts on that? I was really curious. Oh, many thoughts, but. Uh, point of clarification: There weren't Asian students in this movie, were there? Or like, no, they're invisible. Yeah, <laughs> this is like really. <laughs> Wasn't it? No, it was a uh, uh, Asian professor on the right. tenure committee, though. Mm-hmm. And he took right. and he took offense to Liv getting tenure. So yeah, that, that sounds about right. Yeah, and and get out position the one the single Asian character in proximity to whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. Asians in institutions are complicated. Asian American as an identity is messy. It was a political term that was meant to be this sort of coalitional idea that aggregated a lot of experiences that span just swaths of difference. 
And in universities, it does the same thing. You have very wealthy students with a ton of educational privilege, and you have students who don't have the same economic and social capital. And so the use of Asian American as a category often averages a range of experiences that harms a lot of Asian Americans who don't necessarily fall into the demographics that tend to have more privilege. So, okay, one in higher ed, Asian Americans are only counted as minorities when it's convenient. A lot of the, the like statistics on how many racial minorities we have, look at how diverse we are, then we'll count Asian Americans, right? But if we're going to allocate this amount of resources for people of color, then we're not going to count Asian Americans. When it serves the institution, basically, is when we're going to count Asian Americans as minorities. And because Asian American experiences span such difference, and I think honestly, just because we haven't done a good job about creating politicizing narratives around Asian American identity, there are Asian Americans who buy into that proximity to whiteness, who invest in it. It's mm. advantageous for a lot of folks who do. I mean, you know, I think this falls, this is true for a lot of marginalized identities. If you decide to be the person who aligns yourself with whiteness, you get rewarded for that. Mm. Um, it's never, you're never actually going to inhabit whiteness, but you can use that proximity as a shield in ways that harm other people in your communities. And people in the academy do that all of the time. So I, I hate that that is often the only narrative that we have of Asian Americans in the academy about proximity to whiteness. We don't teach Asian American history in a way that gives folks who aren't otherwise grappling with their racial positionality an opportunity to think through what does it mean to inhabit the body-mind that is so often used, whose stories are so often used, to erase racism, right? So that proximity of whiteness is, is not for Asian Americans. Some benefit from it a lot more than others, and it's actually a smaller minority than one would think, but that remains a dominant narrative, and a small contingent of Asian Americans perpetuate that by not questioning why their stories are being positioned in this way, or, or even noticing that their stories are being positioned in this way, because they don't have to. And of course, that's not even necessarily to fault individuals. I don't like assigning individual blame or trying to speculate about individual motive. It's that institutions encourage and reward this, right, over and over again in a way that is designed to appropriate these people's stories as institutional capital. Thank you for that, I guess, question and response. But I don't know that we've gotten, because JL and I got into a back and forth for a minute. So I don't know that, Joe, we have gotten your official, like, either favorite scene, thing that was most provocative. And I don't even know if we got yours, Nikita. Like, I, I, we, I just got in a back and forth with, with Dr. Adolf. I don't know. I go, did we get Nikita's talking point? I don't think. What's your, what's your favorite? What, yeah, we hadn't gotten your takeaway, your hot oh. takes. Okay, so I will admit, <laughs> I, I could, I, uh, it, it was such a difficult watch for me. So I just, I won't say, I won't say I had a favorite scene or something that really like hit me, but it was just little snippets here and there. I'm just like, well, what was that? Like, what, wait, 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 what did that really happen? Like, oh, she ain't about to steal on nobody? What? Like, it was just these moments that was just like, I don't like this. I don't feel good. You know, um, a couple of things that did stick out, stick out to me, though, were these um, images of the mammy 
popping up, mm-hmm. right? Like she was in the house and she found the little, you know, the novelty thing. Um, and even like the cafeteria worker. And I think you and I, Constance, was talking about that. Like we almost felt like that was probably like the most unrealistic scene because I just feel like. They actually made her like a mammy figure, right? Like, oh, I'm gonna take care of these white babies, you know, but my own. I'm gonna be all harsh and strict, and you know, you know. Yeah, she did not give her the obligatory black people head nod. You know, when you the one of two or three black people in a space that you supposed to show love, and especially you were supposed to give extra food to that sister. Like that was that was not realistic. She was kind of stingy with that mac and cheese, yo. She was real stingy with that. Like, I'm like, really? You're not going to chop her another scoop? I mean, come on now. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, your mammy symbolism, I think is a good way that you articulated it. Okay, yeah. Me uh-huh. mugger and everything. Um, I think the library scene really hit me because you know, library is just a sanctuary for me, it still is. And for a moment she thought she had some she was really, you know, she she was vibing with the librarian. She thought, okay, this is, you know, a safe space, and then of course there's a catch, right? She had to check her bag, you know, and then I ugh, the whole thing just had me triggered, but I think this the imagery of the mammy. Tied in with the maid ideology, you know, and her coming to this realization. I was appalled as well when they put on, uh, what was the song they put on, Liv put on the radio, like, ma'am, what are you doing? Like, it's just all of this performative blackness was getting on my nerves. I also noticed that Gail, when she was first going to Liv's house, it was near the beginning, she was trying to get, you know, her feedback, I guess, once they had the little, you know, welcome, you're a master now, you know. Gail was hesitant with her. So I think deep down, she's had some reservations with Liv because she didn't come all out. It wasn't like a sister-to-sister chat. You know, it wasn't like me and you, Constance, where it's like, girl, I just went to this faculty and blah, blah, blah. It was just like, there was, a, there was a wall there. It was some coldness that I sensed, you know? So I don't know. It's a lot. It was just a lot for me to take in. I think I just, I just internalized it just in bits and pieces because I couldn't really take the whole thing together. It's too triggering for me. So so if I can just jump in, like um yes, I loved uh well I already talked about the, the cafeteria later. To me that library scene was so poignant. It reminded me of I think it's in KSA Layman's Heavy or in some other autobiographical essay, but where he talks about, you know, being accused of like, or not even accused, I think he had kept the book out too long or something, but having all of these, like, you know, it's it's both of those incidents and other incidents where we see like contemporary Black writers or creatives representing literacy, barriers to literacy for Black people, right? So it's not as if we're looking at antebellum texts where, you know, um, reading is literally outlawed, but it, it becomes sort of metaphorically. Here's how they're trying to keep they're, they're trying to keep knowledge from us. Like, who cares if the, if the book didn't get scanned? Nobody cares. Like, <laughs> but that wasn't even the case, right? You got a faulty, glitchy system, and I always get paranoid when I'm at the library because I'm scared somebody didn't re- deactivate the, the thing. But why is knowledge? That's a whole other episode. Why? Why we got these things on books? Like, if people wanna treat it like the free library, if somebody wanna take that book out, they gonna bring it back. Who? But whatever. That's another whole. I'm gonna leave it. Anyway, uh, but but somebody in library science might have thoughts about that. Yeah, I do think to your point, 
um, about her reservations uh, or coldness with in terms of Liv. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, I mean, we could say maybe that hesitancy is because she maybe subconsciously or unconsciously knows there's some racial performance, but it could also be, I worked so hard to get where I got. I had to do all of these things. Here's this person who I like, but you know, she's trying to skate, right? It feels like, so I think there are two different levels. Like there is this narrative in much the same way that we talked about the chair. Like there's, you know, there's one narrative that's kind of funny, ha ha. Then there's this other very real palpable tension. Like I think I would be a little salty if I had to write two books or three books and had, you know, 50, 11 articles for tenure. And I see this person trying to roll up in here with her I don't know what I can't even remember, but her they said it was real skimpy. Yeah, she has some op-ed, you know, It's like I'd be like, "What?" <laughs> but but also, you also understand that, and then this is where I think that where I think the film to me is so skillful and speaks to academics a lot, academics of color, because we recognize that this idea of peer-reviewed articles and scholarly articles is very much this good old boy network where you can be a public intellectual or you can have knowledge that's accessible to people. Um, You can co-host a podcast and talk about academic and intellectual things. That is, you know, so this validation of one type of knowledge, right, that Gail had to do in order to get accepted into a place where she ultimately ends up essentially feeling like she, maybe she shouldn't have been in the first place, right? So, but also I would be salty as hell. So yeah, it's, it's a, clear tension there i think yeah you're right there's a tension so well i guess just speaking about camaraderie too just real quick you know she found the other black students too late like where was y'all at where was this flyer you know like (laughs) (laughs) it's about to be summer now i mean what the hell (laughs) but but you know what we i want to go back to the um to the music that Liv was playing and that sort of thing. Um, because I found it kind of interesting every time hip hop was used, it was followed behind some image of sexuality and that sort of thing. So when you think about it, like for, for instance, when they were at the college party and, you know, they were playing a Sheck uh, song and that sort of thing. And right after that, after Jasmine is dancing, then she ends up in the room with Tyler and then it's like this kiss scene, but her roommate looked at her like, ah, you're intruding into my space with your hit, uh, quote unquote, being talking about the mammy character, the Jezebel that is coming to seduce this white male. And then it flips to a scene later on where her roommate ends up and I guess, a risque position with a a group of men outside that looked like it may have been some form of sexual abuse. So you got that. And then on the flip side, when the tenure party and she's trying and Liv is trying to say, let me let's show this white male like how we dance, how we shake it and that sort of thing. Because he said, I can't move in that way. Well, we'll show you how to move in that way. So. I was just interested in uh, you all's take on, you know, this whole idea of the fear of black of black women's sexuality versus white, you know, I guess, restraint and sexual restraint, that sort of thing. 
That's deep. I don't I don't even know. We might have to tackle that in another episode because I, I want to hear Joe's takes. But here's what I will say in my – y'all know I'm never lacking for comments. But I, I just think that – um, yeah, I that's an interesting – like, I hadn't even thought about that, but that's a really good point. I think my I, – I noticed the same thing Nikita noticed in terms of her playing it because I think the fear was we can have Black Joy in our own spaces. You know, we could do – we probably wouldn't necessarily mind twerking if it's our peers. <laughs> But right. to do that in front of white people, um, Gail seemed to be uh, especially sort of horrified by that because, you know, she she viewed that as a, a type of, you know, racial and sexual performance, um, you know, to be sort of, I think, a, like a shucking and jiving, like, no, we're not going to do that. And so, I mean, that Liv is probably... failed huh? that test. Liv you say? failed that test. She, if she was really Black, she would have known, no, 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 we don't do that. <laughs> right. Now that I realize it, she failed. Right. Like, Oh my God! Yeah, we don't do that in mixed company. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the curtain I mean, from behind the scene. If you are a young graduate, black graduate student of color, yeah, twerk yeah. in the privacy of your own group. Now listen, though, I'm telling you, <laughs> we're not even trying to like all jokes aside because we just got through watching the movie Dear White People, and it's like the conundrum that black people you know of either a certain educational background or a certain class run up against. Like, do I tip? for shitty service. I don't want to reaffirm the stereotype, but I also don't want to reward people for being racist and being assholes. Or like, do I eat fried, even if I love fried chicken, can I eat fried chicken around a bunch of white people? Like, no, I don't want to be, you don't want, you know, it's a weird, yeah, I mean, I think the film speaks to that weird, You, know, I think that scene speaks to that weird, like what's in group, in-house behavior versus what do we do, you know, to Nikita's point, like, we don't do it in mixed company just because we might do it, you know, amongst ourselves. So, yeah, it's a lot there. But, um, Joe, what's your hot takes? What are your hot takes? <laughs> so the thing I think about most, I think both in my cultural consumption and my work, is what are the routes to relationality and coalition and what are the things that prevent it from happening? So, I mean, back to Nikita's question, the reason that Asian Americans are strategically positioned in proximity to whiteness was actually because of anti-blackness, right? Like we, it was in, engineered in the history of Asians coming to the West. Basically, it's no longer sustainable for us to use slavery as a form of labor because we're trying to position ourselves as the like liberal frontier of progress. So we're going to import these Asian laborers and position them as somehow culturally superior to black folks, but also inferior to white folks. But that narrative is going to prevent them from forming any sort of coalition and, you know, rise against us. Like that was, that was the strategy. Mm -hmm. And so the thing I'm noticing in this film is how it highlights the ways that institutions create environments of precarity and scarcity that prevent people who should otherwise be on the same side from acting in one another's interests. And so that, that deep discomfort when Gail can't help Jasmine in the way that she wants to or should maybe captures for me the worst part about being in the academy um and, and Nikita talked about this a little bit for me like I with my skill sets with my disability with who I am as a person this is probably the job with which I have the most resources at my disposal in order to keep that job I find myself in positions where it's like I can throw everything out the window for this one fight, or I can think about what I need to have tenure so that I can have this fight a dozen more times. But to make that decision 
sometimes you can't sleep at night, right? Because you're like, what more could I have done? And also you can't save the world because <laughs> you are one person. And so you're constantly spinning your circles trying to figure out like, what is, what is the most I can do and stay alive? Uh, what is the, what is the least I can do and sleep at night? Right. And it, it's you absorbing the responsibility of the institution, right? Like you shouldn't be in this position to begin with, but because the institution refuses to be better, you as an individual are having to deal with that on an everyday basis. And that, that's what it captures for me. So I want, just having come from this faculty, women of color conference was just amazing on Friday night, Dr. Roxanne Gay talked about, well, one, she said, you know, that this is the only place where people call me doctor, other Black women. And, and she was just like, you know, but you're welcome to call me Roxanne, but I just appreciate that. But she also said some other really resonant things. But um, Nicole Hannah-Jones made two points that I thought were just um, so great. The first being something that you and I have talked about, Joe, and that you spoke to just now, like narrative shapes policy. And and that was one of the things that, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones talked about in terms of the backlash to the 1619 Project, where she only wrote a few essays in that book. You know, it's other scholars, but she became the face of it because it was easier to, you know, critique her as a journalist and her identity and then to, to then tie that to critical race theory. And then um, in the sense that, you know, Here's where it starts. But then you see those same people that are, you know, have done, have instituted CRT bans that are now instituting bans for parents of trans youth and bans for saying the word gay, you know. So she's like, you know, this is where it starts, you know, and, and this is how it starts. So that was the one thing that I thought was really resonant that you made. And then the other point that she made um, yesterday when she's talking about um, Justice um, Kentanji Brown Jackson's hearings, and, and she's actually, I was kind of trying to do the live updates. I think it's gone to send it now. But, but she talked about where this moment where, I think it might have been Cory Booker, but I'm not even sure, but where essentially someone is asking her about the 1619 Project and where um, Justice Brown Jackson, you know, basically has to disavow that, right? She has to distance herself you know, from the 1619 Project. And one of the things that Nicole Hannah-Jones was, was great about pointing out, and she was, she was really great when she came here and talked about resegregation and school, you know, like districting. So I, I really love the consistency of her work. But she says, I know I'll never be a Supreme Court justice. Like we all have to make choices. And I have privilege relative to a lot of women of color. And so I'm able to do and get away with some things that other people can't. And I recognize that and I can't criticize because some people's livelihood, she's like, I can say a lot of stuff and I have political cover or I'm going to still be, I'm going to still be able to feed my family. So she's like, well, I hated that moment, but I also understand. I, she said, I would never probably be in that position, but I also know I'm not going to ever be a Supreme Court justice because I'm not going to be, you know, like though there, those are some sacrifices or some choices that I am not willing to make. Um, and because of decisions that I've made regarding my personal identity, my career, et cetera, I won't be in certain spaces and I'm okay with that. So this idea that we have to make choices um, is really the, a powerful image I think that we end up being left with because, you know, when Gail, this is crazy. This woman was the face of the, of the face of diversity, right? At the institution and on all these commercials. But the literally, security, yeah. Yeah, quite literally. But the security guard doesn't recognize her, you know, right? And it's at, the, at the end, um, when he's like, do you work here? And she says no. And y'all, I, I kid you not, I think I just told Nikita this. A friend of mine in academia, and I won't name names, 
even though she might not listen to this podcast, girl, you need to listen to this podcast. But she said she's <laughs> leaving academia. And she's like, oh, I thought she was leaving to go to another institution. She's like, no, I'm leaving academia altogether. And I was like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> all right to then. <laughs> so, so, I mean, so it's like, what are the, what can we live with? I think it was the point that Nicole Hannah-Jones made and that I think, you know, the film asked us. And I think, you know, that we, you know, what are the decisions and choices that we can live with? And I, so that to me, that kind of, I don't want to say metaphor, but that scene is really powerful because it invokes that question for me. And I don't know the answer to that. Right. But yeah. Do either of y'all want it? That felt heavy. No, I mean, anybody want to talk about I, no, no, I think you hit it. Um, and I'm going to speak from a journalism perspective because I'm, Unlike the three of you, I am not a true academic. I'm more of a professor of practice. Uh, but the burden is still there across industries, right? Um, and a lot of it is, you know, you all are well-versed in research and academia. I'm well-versed in, in journalism. I know the rules. And a lot of times what we're seeing is us having to defend policies that are systemically racist, you know, and we're seeing it all play out. And I'm not saying this particular situation I'm going to say, you know, is racist, but, you know, you think about the power of titles um, in the black community in particular. Um, I know that there's a practice with AP style. We don't give anybody the, the doctor. We don't call you that unless you're a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking to diverse audiences, they're like, well, you better give them they, 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 they letters. They, they earn that title. And it's just you guys being racist. It's like, no, we just don't do that. You know, and it's like you see yourself in these positions where you having to explain, you know, why we didn't do X, Y and Z, you know, but, you know, certain things are important to your community. So it's like you have to choose break the rules and you find yourself in a position where you're educating both sides, you know, so. I think I, I related to Gail, bringing it back. I related to Gail because she's having to educate or actually, you know, help her white colleagues, but she's also having to support Jasmine, you know, it's like representing, supporting and, and educating them on the system. And I don't know, I, like I said, the whole thing left me triggered, but you just talking about, you know, Roxane Gay, who, who, who did you say was at your, your conference? Yeah, it was Roxane Gay, but, but. I mean, here's the the thing, though. I think so. So there's two things. Oh, if that's AP, you know, form or style, you know, in terms of Associated Press, that's that's maybe fine. But in terms of announcing and giving titles, you know, verbally, that's to me a little different than in print. So you could still give a sister that I think, especially in the context that she was talking about in terms of white men trying to diminish her intelligence. But the other thing I would say is about industry standards, that if that industry was created by and sustained by white people, then that might be something to push back against anyway. Because I know that, I mean, I don't know specifically like the Black Journalist Association stance mm-hmm. on on that, but, you know, just in thinking about, let's say, linguistic justice, where just, what has it just been the last three or four years that we've said, hey, you need to capitalize Black. Exactly. You know, so back against the rules. They're not right, right. So yeah, maybe I mean, the rules. find yourself defending those things, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you made me think about that. It's like, well, in a minute, I'm like, well, actually, it's right. like, wait a minute, you know what right. I mean? I, right. Who made the rules? <laughs> Who they benefit? I mean, like, okay, <laughs> you know, well, right. that, that may be the rule, but it's probably arbitrary as most rules are. So mm-hmm. we can yeah, change. It's, it's funny you use that ex- ex- example because I have 
seen the AP rules use this justification for not referring to specifically a Black woman professor as doctor, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't need to because the AP only uses doctor for physicians or MDs. And I've, I've seen that in public deliberation as like a reason, basically, someone who was racist did not want to acknowledge mm-hmm. the degrees of the person he was addressing. So you're actually upholding... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you defended me for them because you're well trained. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, I don't know, y'all. We we could probably. I, so here's what we should probably do because I mean we got all the feels and all the thoughts. I think. Um, let's try to get one. I want people to be able to know where they can find y'all on social media, but I do want to know if there are like people like thoughts that each of you want to leave us with. I think I kind of like my unintentionally my last kind of comment about like what are the choices we can live with and you know do you walk away I feel like that was kind of my like that last scene also feels like it's sort of wrapping up my take but do each of you have maybe in a sentence or less you know why why should people watch the film or what do you think is like the biggest takeaway your takeaway from the film? Oh, you want me to go ahead so I would say overall I think people need to watch this film because more and more films like this are actually challenging our idea of who the real monsters are, uh, who the real boogeyman is. Um, and they're looking at it in, you know, just a different lens. And I will hope that they are open enough to listen to and, and pick up on the themes, you know, and it is disheartening to see, you know, the critics go after it the way they did and they refuse to see it because everybody wants to say racism is just this evil man. You know, with the mustache yelling the N word, you know, but it's it's more insidious, you know, it's it's, it's deeper, you know what I mean? So I, I, I like movies like this because it does challenge our idea of what racism looks like, what you know, what evil looks like, and a lot of times it's right on your nose and that makes it the scariest of all. So um, that's my take from it, yes. Like who's the real boogeyman? You know, but that's my takeaway. I kind of want to follow that because my takeaway thought kind of connects Constance's and Nikita's thinking through both the movie and our conversation. What I always end up arriving at in this like messy world that we have to live in and work in is the need to hold on to who is the actual perpetrator of harm in this situation and who am I fighting for and use those to draw the hard lines in the choices you have to make within these institutions. And that's sort of the best way I've found of navigating the inherently harmful worlds that we have to step into and navigate, right? Like, who is the one who's actually causing harm because institutions love to sort of reorient you and redirect your anger and hurt toward other people? And also, who am I fighting for? And, you know, how do I make sure that my actions are oriented toward those things? That's awesome. JL, what you got? Okay, so the reason why a viewer should watch this is because I believe that Master is a uh, a cinematic version of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, so to speak. And um, and I'll just break it down like real quick. Like with Dyson, he basically uh, Michael Air Dyson said in the article is three types of black people. And in that film, you get the accidental black um, that, hey, I can't help it, I'm black. The incidental black, which is kind of like the Barack Obama, yeah, I'm good, but, you know, I just so happen to be black too. And then you got the intentional black. I think with the accidental, you got Jasmine. With the incidental, you got Gail. 
with the intentional you got live and how do we all live with that so um that's that's what i think and it ends just like ralph ellison's invisible man too with gail walking away and you're like how realistic is this wow but that's insane that's insanely funny that the intentional black is the person who we're led to believe is is probably not black so that is very insane she got to be intentionally more black (laughs) hey she got defensive when you questioned her blackness like hey who are you to decide okay so don't be don't try to put nobody puts baby in a corner okay Don't, don't do that um all right so then um, Nikita, where can, and, and, and just, you know, full disclosure, we talked a lot and unpacked a lot. There is a lot of symbolism in the title and some maggots and some old dead white guys and pictures that come to life. And there's a lot of like sort of obvious symbolism that we didn't get to, but we'll try to address, you know, some of the allusions that we talked about, um, you know, different texts that we refer to in the show notes. Um, but before we go, uh, Nikita, where can people find you on social media? Yes, so I can be reached at um, AR Got Soul. Um, I'm devoting a bunch of my time to building our platform. Um, AR Got Soul across all the social media platforms and ARGotSoul.com if you want to read the latest news for BIPOC Arkansas in the natural state. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. And then, JL, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me on um, all the major social media networks under Dad Cipher, D-A-D-C-Y-P-H-E-R, Dad Cipher, a hip-hop guide to fatherhood. I'm, this is my bad dad joke. I'm dad ciphering all the content in hip-hop lyricism and showing what we should learn from it. So if you're into hip-hop, fatherhood, and an avid Marvel head, come and check me out on all of those platforms and that sort of thing. Yeah, and if you do some crossover stuff, you know, Joe and I'll hop on and and and, and chop it up with you. Um Joe, you're not a guest, but would you like to tell people where they can find you on, on social media? Oh, I guess I've never done we've never done that on this show. I don't, but I don't can, think we yeah. have uh, you can find my website at www.bjohsu.com and there's contact info there. Awesome. Yeah, I am on Twitter. I think my handle is at CNA Bailey, the parable of the professor, or it might still be their eyes were watching COVID. Uh, that was it at one point. But if, if, you, if you at me, CNA Bailey, you can find it or you can find the podcast, right? Um, the underscore unpack this podcast at Twitter and our Gmail, the unpack this podcast at gmail.com. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, things you want us to unpack. Now that we have almost figured out the technology thing, we can have guests. Like, we almost know how to do this thing. (laughs) Y'all have a great one. We'll talk to you soon.